and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we are truly into December and winter now, and I've really noticed the temperature dropping over the past few weeks. I imagine that everyone working at home is pulling on the extra layers or cranking up the heating. I'm certainly doing both of those things. But being a bit cheesy, I hope that listening to our podcast puts a bit of warm joy in your heart. And actually, our interview this week is genuinely heartwarming. I spoke to para show jumper Evie Toombs about the challenges she faces and how her horses help her to stay positive and prove she can achieve amazing feats. Don't always underestimate people just because of their weaknesses. Because if you underestimate them on their weaknesses, you're not valuing their strengths. I'll also be joined by our news team to talk about minimum wage increases, live transport to slaughter and coronavirus rule breaches. Finally, vet Ricky Farr will be giving his advice on managing horses' weight at this time of year. Domestication has been the biggest downfall of them. They're designed to be walking miles and miles a day and that's the problem. So that's enough of me. Zip up your coat and let's get going. So this has been a special week for us at Horse and Hound because we've finally been able to reveal the winners of our Horse and Hound annual awards in partnership with NAF. We've announced the winners of 12 awards online and in the magazine this week, and I'm so excited to have one of those award winners with me today. The Pika Amateur of the Decade had four worthy shortlisted contenders, but the winner was Evie Toombs, para show jumper and disability campaigner. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, Evie. Hi Pippa, thank you so much for having me. I'm really elated to have been included in the awards and be a part of such a special thing. Yeah, it's it's great to have you involved and we're recording this a couple of weeks after you found out that that you'd won the uh, the award although also a couple of weeks before it's actually announced so uh, you've got to keep it quiet but um, how did you feel about being nominated and then finding out you were a winner? I think gratitude was probably the biggest thing and a lot of shock. I was I had no idea about it. I'd seen, of course, the awards nominations were open and I think I'd nominated one of my friends in another category, but it never occurred to me that I would be one of the people nominated. So it was complete shock and it's just fantastic to be here now and have the award. It's wonderful. Really great to hear that, that you're so pleased to, uh, to to be winning that award. Now, Evie, tell us a little more about you and about the challenges that you have in your life because you are a disability campaigner, a para show jumper, and you were born with spina bifida. Can you tell us a little more about that condition? Yeah, of course. So I'll try and make it as simple as possible. Spina bifida is a condition I was born with. It's basically a fatty mass wrapped around the spinal cord and it affects the nerves to my legs, bladder and bowel. So none of them work very well. Basically, it's a spinal cord injury. And over the years, it's meant I've had to spend a lot of time in hospital. I'm disabled and now registered as a parish show jumper. I'm tube fed. I have a Hickman line that sits in my chest and goes into the main artery and gives feed directly um, into my bloodstream. So there's quite a lot of extreme treatments now. And through kind of all of my health issues, the one thing that's constantly kept me going from a young age is horses. 
I had a place to turn to when I was poorly and um, I was bullied a lot in school, funnily enough, because um, no one likes a kid with tubes. They're kind of a great target for naughty kids and people that want to have a bit of a pick at someone. Whereas my pony, I could do what I wanted with him. You know, it didn't matter whether I was poorly or healthy. I got to ride and it was a great escape for me. And it all started from there, really. Yeah. So tell us about that connection you have with horses. How did you start riding? I'm really lucky that my mum has always been quite horsey. So we started going to my local riding school when I was younger. And it was my neurosurgeon who did my spinal surgery, who encouraged my mum to let me ride. And he said, just plonk her on a horse, get her riding, get her doing something that she loves and some exercise it will be the best thing for her so we had the go ahead from the doctor and since then we haven't really looked back um riding schools are i think absolutely fantastic and a key part for many people starting their riding journeys to learn the basics and form friendships that we make in the horse world too uh, i look back at those memories with a lot of fondness Mm. And it's it's great that it sounds like you had a specialist who is very go ahead and encouraged you to, to live your life, not to sort of hide away and let your disability control what you could do. Exactly. And that's very much the line that my parents have taken with me. I was never wrapped in bubble wrap or anything like that. And growing up, I was breaking my ankles, my wrists, mainly because with my disability, I still hadn't quite figured out how to walk and run properly. So I would just fall over all the time. And my parents just used to pick me up, off you go again, and never actually told me that I had a disability until I was around 10 years old, which was a huge shock for me. But it made a lot of sense after that. And I think not labeling me like that gave me a chance to just carry on and get on with it. And the whole kind of find a way, not an excuse, as my motto goes, is to just keep pushing through. It's amazing and a really positive attitude there from your parents. Just give us some context, Evie, when you say when you were at school, how old are you now? I'm 19 now, scarily enough. So, um, yeah, it was I started getting a lot poorlier when I was at the end of primary school, actually. And I started spending more time in hospital. And that was when I went from having an illness that I could hide to having visible tubes and splints which go on my legs like a leg brace and all of a sudden there came a lot of judgment because I couldn't hide my struggles anymore and that was when I there was a kind of a crossover point where I began getting a bit bullied and things and so I started my blog and I thought well if someone's going to threaten to tell everyone my big secret I want to be the one to do it and I'm going to tell my story the way I want it to be told. Um, so it was a kind of a, um, a scary point because I thought people are either going to completely um, turn the hoof at me and not like what I'm going to share and not like me or hopefully it'll be well received and so far it has been. Yeah, I was reading a couple of entries on your blog when I was preparing for this interview and would definitely recommend that people have a look at that and sort of follow follow what's happening with you. And to come back to your riding, how did you go from being someone who was, you know, enjoying having riding lessons to starting show jumping? This is quite a funny one because growing up, I was the kid always falling off when I went for my lessons. I would be the one in the lesson falling off. I was scared to jump and I would much prefer to sit in my stable grooming my pony. I had a grey pony, so there was a lot of grooming to do. And I think it was when 
I actually got a bit poorly and I wanted something that I could achieve in and something that I could have a bit of value in myself. And my mum said, right, well, if you want to do that, um, you can, you're good at writing, Evie. You can start writing for some of these medical companies and writing blogs for them. So catheter companies and things like that. And um, they paid me for it. And she, my mum said, great, they've given you that money and you can now go to a show and buy your entries with that. So she encouraged me to try and start on my own two feet from the very beginning. And that sense of achievement, both in having the value of being able to go out and compete and do something I loved that made me feel a bit more alive, made everything worthwhile. And since then, it's become a bit of an addiction. And tell us about the horse that you have now. Daisy. <laughs> Daisy the dinosaur, we call her. She is just fantastic. I'm probably biased, um, but she has a really big heart. And I think that's a really important factor for any horse. Uh, she's quite sharp, actually, and we we joke because we say there's no such thing as a para horse. You think of a para horse as being a donkey, something that anyone can get on, and whereas actually Daisy's quite the opposite, and she's very sharp and upright. But for some reason, we just seem to click. And she's a big chestnut mare, not necessarily the first one people would look at. However, she's 17 and she's got that experience to help me out and we can have fun together so she hacks out um with me and then we jump as well and we have a really nice partnership and it sounds like your illness is something where you sort of go through phases where you might be in hospital and you're quite unwell and then maybe you have periods where you're feeling better and you're able to do more is she able to sort of adjust to that with you she seems to be very, very sensible at adjusting. So there have been times when I've been really weak and my biggest achievement has been going for a hack around our local village, which I absolutely loved. And she'll happily plod along at the end of the rains and just waddle round. And then when I'm slightly stronger, we're able to go out competing together and not just kind of go round and have a little jump round, but really compete and give it our best chance. So um, no, I'm really lucky to have a horse that I can have fun in all aspects on. We do pony club, we do the lot. It's um, yeah, I think she's my horse of a lifetime. And it sounds like when you're uh, when you're on your best form, you're really quite a competitive, uh, you're quite a competitive rider. Do you like to get in there and win? I think I do, especially when was it? It would have been a few years ago. And it was when I first got registered as a para athlete. And I was last to go in a class. And I think someone had gone into the lead and they said, oh, how many people are left to go? And their trainer or their mum had said, oh, I think there's only a few, but one of them's the para girl. So don't worry too much. Um, which I kind of thought, oh, fair enough, because people do underestimate naturally. It's just a natural kind of thing that we presume. Anyways, I went in last in the class and won the class by a good two seconds, I think it was. And that was when the penny began to drop with people that actually don't un always underestimate people just because of their weaknesses. Because if you underestimate them on their weaknesses, you're not valuing their strengths. And do you mention that you've been classified as a para rider? Now, I don't know much about para show jumping and I don't think it's as well known as para dressage. How does it work? Are there different grades? Do you have special tack that you're allowed to use in the same way as people use special tack in para dressage? What's the structure there? 
Yeah, so para show jumping isn't as big as para dressage yet. They're currently working with the FEI and various other organisations to try and get it into the Paralympics, which is phenomenal. And to see any of the para show jumpers that I know in the UK ever get there would be incredible. And I'll certainly be cheering them on if I'm not lucky enough to be there myself. We have three grades. So we jump 70, 80 and 90. I'm grade three, which jumps 90 centimetres. And we're allowed things like looped reins for riders that have arm weakness. Um, you're allowed capped stirrups. So for me, I don't use them anymore, but my feet used to go straight through my stirrups because I couldn't feel my legs. So having a cap to stop your toes wedging through, of course, makes it a lot safer. And we're also allowed a stick in each hand to back up our legs if our legs are weak. So there are a lot of things that help us and it's completely British show jumping legal under the rules as long as you're registered as a para. Um, so that's really useful. Mm, and you're able to use those sort of special aids even when you're competing in able-bodied classes too. Yes, exactly. And it does make a huge, huge difference, especially to rider safety in general, but also to just kind of help you with your disability. Mm, that makes sense. And what do you enjoy about riding? What does it sort of bring to your life and uh, and, and what does it help you with? So at the moment, I'm in hospital um, surprise, surprise again. As if anyone knows me, they'll know that's a regular occurrence. And right now, it gives me something to look forward to. I know when I go home, I have something to work towards, something that I can enjoy, and it's there waiting for me. I'm not going through all of this in hospital just to go home and sit on the sofa. I have something that I can really put all of my effort into. And then also having the therapy side of having a horse and animals and being in the outdoors in general, I think is fantastic for all of us with our health and our mental health. So there are, there are so many benefits, um, but I do feel incredibly lucky to have Daisy who makes it all worthwhile and also the team around me that support me. So that's sponsors, our livery yard, um, everyone that makes it possible and just encourages us to try. And you say that you're in hospital now. Have there been sort of particular challenges this year with COVID-19? Have you had any changes or delays in your treatment? Yeah, so I had my I was due to have surgery that I'd been waiting roughly four years to have in March and that was postponed unfortunately. I was sent home and got very, very ill very quickly. And it got quite scary to the point where I was rushed in as an emergency and put onto nutrition into my bloodstream to try and keep me alive, essentially. So now I'm on that treatment, which is called TPN. So it's just basically, instead of eating food, which I can't do, the nutrition goes into my bloodstream. So things like that have been very scary but I'm very lucky that we've been able to get things sorted and I had my surgery in late September so far so good things are improving there's still a few things to iron out don't get me wrong but I'm really thankful that we have been able to get that surgery 
as um, things weren't looking too good otherwise. Mm, it's a really difficult time for everybody, but particularly for, for someone like you with those special medical needs and, and, and that surgery needing to go ahead. So thank goodness you were able to get in and, and, and get that to happen in September. And Evie, tell us a little bit about your campaigning work. You do some work sort of in educating people about disabilities and, and speaking to, to people about, about that, don't you? Yes. So it was when I started secondary school and I was kind of navigating the world of being judged by people. And it's kind of at an age where everyone begins to form their opinions very strongly. And I realized that no one understood the concept of invisible illnesses and disabilities, or it was still quite a taboo subject. So I wanted to raise awareness for that because I knew, so at the time I was mentoring other children that were struggling with similar conditions to me. So I began visiting primary schools to educate children on invisible illnesses and to encourage them that even if they have challenges, whether it be health, financial, family, anything, the whole essence of find a way, not an excuse, and that they are capable of so much more than they think. And from there, I then authored with my mum, Lucy Goes to School, which is a children's book, basically raising awareness for invisible illnesses. And since then, that's become an award-winning book, um, which is incredible. Yeah, it's um, one of my proudest achievements, and I really enjoy being able to just share an insight into things and help people understand a bit more. And from what you've told us and the other things I've read about you, you are someone who has such a positive outlook despite the the many challenges in your life. How do you do that? How do you stay positive? I am not positive 100% of the time and I say this to a lot of people. Everyone has bad days and we all struggle at times and I don't think it's a case of being expecting life to be perfect all of the time because it isn't for anyone but what I think we try to do is pick the good moments and appreciate that they'll be good and bad but try and have good things to look forward to and recognize the good moments too because in each day I can promise you there'll be something good even if it's just as simple as having the perfect cup of coffee when everything else in your cars broke down or something like that there is always something good to take away from it and if not if you've had a really bad day then chances are you probably due a really good day soon (laughs) that is a good philosophy to have and it's so great to hear that you have daisy as something to look forward to when you get out of hospital and hopefully we'll see you out there show jumping again with her soon do you have any sort of tentative plans for, for for competitions or lessons or or rides when you get out i'm really keen to get back out riding and just the thought of it i'm getting excited So that's going to be a lot of fun, ideally to hopefully get back competing. I'm still kind of recovering from surgery, so it will be nice to ease myself into it. We also have um, my mum's horse, who's a young horse called Apple. We're training her specifically for my disability as a para horse. So I'm going to be going on to her very soon, and we've just got um, 
Devico have helped us get a saddle sorted for me and my disability and things like that. So everything's coming together to hopefully have a younger horse coming up so that Daisy doesn't have to go on into her 40s. <laughs> um, so it's going to be nice to just get back out competing and seeing people because it's such a social thing being able to ride. And um, I'm looking forward to the social side too, because at the moment I'm in a hospital room completely on my own. My parents aren't allowed to visit um, and you literally see a nurse for 20 minutes a day. So it will be nice to be back out and just in the fresh air and with the animals. Oh, definitely. And that sounds really interesting that you're training that horse in a way which will sort of cater for your disability. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so with my leg weakness, if you picture a pair of legs from the knee below so from the knee all the way to the toes I can't feel much of my legs at all so when I'm riding I use a lot of my core strength to compensate for that and just hope that my legs aren't too floppy below I call my legs floppy legs so what we've done with Apple is we have trained her to the voice so instead of her reacting to say a lot of leg or inside leg outside leg instead she's voice trained so you click her or you woe her and she responds much better to that and that's purely through training her since a three-year-old to do that which has been a difficult at times because she's also got quite an attitude on her, but she's very good at working with the rider. And we're also doing a lot of flat work to help get those basics correct and enjoying the process too. It's, um, it's lovely to hopefully have something to progress on and enjoy. Although I don't plan to give up Daisy anytime soon. She is main priority. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's all so good to hear. And thank you for joining us, Evie, from, from hospital and, and talking to us about, about your win in that Horse and Hound Award and about your horses and everything that's going on in your life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Pippa. And a huge thank you to, of course, Horse and Hound and to anyone that's ever kind of got in touch online or anything or said hi or an course people that have voted because it really was very kind and it's very appreciated so i'm joined by all three of our news team for today's roundup of the latest across the horse world so firstly hello to our news editor eleanor jones hello eleanor morning and also hi to our senior news writer lucy elder hi lucy hi and to our news writer, Becky Murray. Hello, Becky. Hello. What has everybody been up to? Eleanor, you said you've been out to a show this week? Yes, hurrah. First show, obviously, uh, since lockdown was lifted, which was brilliant. Um, although it's just the perfect timing, just as the mud's got really offensive and I've got my big mare loves rolling and hates being brushed. So it's just, like, oh, we've got a big job on our hands. But it was fab. She was so keen to be going back out again. Oh, am I right in thinking she's grey or is that the other one? No, that's the other one. Luckily, this is the bay mare, but she does love scrubbing her face into the mud. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you got out to a show anyway, even if it was with a slightly dirty pony. Um, <laughs> what about you, Becky? Is Chloe continuing on the right track now that she's back home? Yes, I took her to my trainer's yard for a lesson on Friday, which was really lovely. Um, but we do seem to have so much flooding from either rain or, on the flip side, a frozen arena. So I'm just trying to get as much riding in when I can at the moment and be grateful for what I do get done. Uh, reminding myself daily and that I love winter riding, really. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What about you, Lucy? Are you still riding? 
I am still riding. I've I've just had a whole week off. It's been lovely. Um, I haven't been anywhere because I'm in a slightly strange situation where I live in tier two, in the little little tier two bubble that's in, in the Midlands. Everywhere around me is in tier three, including where I keep my horse. So I, to be honest, last week, I just, I just relaxed. I, I went walking and I enjoyed riding at home and I haven't hugely looked too much into the rules about where I can take and where I can't. And I think... To be honest, I'm just going to wait and wait until the sort of restrictions hopefully ease again soon, as I don't really want to be travelling between tiers if if I if I don't need to be at the moment. So we're just we're just enjoying enjoying winter riding. It was we got a lot of quite a lot of snow at home last week, so she had a few few cozy cozy days inside. But other than that, the sun's come out now. We've got some of those beautiful sort of Christmas card shots. I like to call them, where you get you know beautiful snow through horses' ears and things. So been enjoying doing that. Oh, nice. Well, I am going to do a dressage test this Saturday. So I had a dressage lesson last weekend. And um, so mum had entered as both for, for, for this for this dressage competition. The way it works is that we do one test each on the same horse. He thinks it's really mean that there should be one <laughs> horse for each rider. But we've explained that's not how this works. He has to do both tests. So uh, she, she entered and then she sent me the dressage test that I was meant to be doing. And she was like, oh, I've given you the harder one. And I, I was like, that doesn't seem fair. I rode once during no. <laughs> November and I haven't done any dressage since mid-October like you ride like four or five days a week lunch in the other days like you know my mum is the one that's on it here but I was like okay so I had a look at the test it was in a long arena it had a lot of length and strides and some counter canter so I was like oh this is going to be interesting so uh, but I had a great dressage lesson last weekend and um, we were practicing the, uh, the the Connemara pony length and strides and uh, he's actually very good at counter canter which is uh, which is good news since we've got to do it so uh, feeling a bit more confident about this Saturday and uh, hoping he's up for being double dressage pony this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we better get on to the serious business and we've got a couple of big stories this week. Eleanor, you've been working on a piece about increases to wages and sort of how that affects the equestrian world. What's led to this? Yeah, so the, the government announced uh, at the end of November and it was sort of slightly uh, maybe missed a bit in all the news about Brexit and, and the pandemic, but they've announced that the, the national minimum wage is going to go up again next April. But also uh, the national living wage is going to be extended to younger people, so to 23 and 24 year olds for the first time next year. Okay, and that's obviously going to affect the equestrian industry as well as lots of others. What's the reaction from across our industry? I know you spoke to the Equestrian Employers Association and also to some employers about it. Yeah, so the, the Equestrian Employers Association is saying obviously this this could well have big implications for our industry. Um, obviously it does apply to everyone, but there are a lot of uh, younger people who to whom that living wage increase is going to apply for the first time so there could be a I mean wage bills obviously are among the highest bills that a lot of equestrian centres have anyway and they could be going up by a lot so and of course there is the thing that this isn't just something you can ignore this is it's illegal not to pay the minimum wage. Mm. And, um, and and what I know you spoke to one of the big equestrian centres what was was their reaction? Yeah, I spoke to a Wellington riding, which is part of the Wellington estate in Hampshire, and they said that pressure from the government over wages is one of the biggest challenges in running an equestrian centre. They've got a livery yard, riding school uh, and a competition centre. And they just say it makes it so hard because um, and one thing they pointed out was as a general rule across the country, you know, who, who else got pay reviews, have had pay reviews in the last year with everything that's been going on and it being so tough for businesses. 
Um, so there are now lots of people going that are going to have to have a pay rise when a lot of other people aren't. So, mm. yeah, very difficult. And I noticed that in your story as well, that they were saying that sort of people maybe higher up the uh, sort of employee chain might then feel they need a rise as well, because otherwise the, the people below them will be creeping closer to their salaries. So there are lots of knock on implications. And of course, the, the costs likely to be passed on to, to the end user, to, to clients, those taking lessons, those putting horses in livery and so on, of course. Yeah, and it was sort of uh, pointed out maybe to businesses that you know who I'm sure know anyway but but obviously this money has to come from somewhere and so clients maybe need to be prepared for the fact that livery and lesson prices will go up next year because this this pay rise has to be funded. Mm, thank you Eleanor. So something for all employers to be on top of there and for, for those of us who are end users to to be aware of if prices rise it's not just that the businesses are greedy or upping charges for no reason but you know they have to comply with with these requirements they are they are the law. Becky we're coming over to you now and we have some developments around live transport of horses to slaughter. It's a story that Horse and Hound has followed for many years. What's happening there in that area? Well, the UK government has announced plans to ban the export of live animals for slaughter and has launched an eight-week public consultation on this. Now, in this consultation, the proposals include reducing maximum journey times and trying to improve welfare by giving animals more space and introducing stricter rules on transporting by sea. Okay. And I think sometimes when we think about this topic, we think it's quite simple, you know, just don't put animals, horses through stressful journeys on the way to slaughter. It sounds like a simple idea. But when I read the story, it's actually quite confusing. And there are quite a lot of extra complications, particularly because horses are transported for a variety of reasons, maybe more than other animals which are transported to slaughter. Can you tell us a little more about that sort of side of it? Yes, so horses are often being transported for competition and leisure and something World Horse Welfare pointed out is that in reality no horses travelling abroad from England and Wales have been declared as for slaughter this century. So we would really need to ensure full traceability of horses' movements for any kind of enforcement of any new guidelines that do come in. That's interesting, but presumably the charities are, are welcoming these plans overall? Absolutely. It's something World Horse Welfare and the RSPCA have both campaigned and worked a lot on um, over the years. And this is certainly taking another step in the right direction. So it is positive. Hmm. Okay, good to hear that then. Thank you, Becky. Before we leave this story, I just wanted to bring Eleanor back in because I know that a couple of years ago, Eleanor, you followed some horses who were taking the journey to slaughter with World Horse Welfare, I think. What was that like? Oh, just... Uh, yeah awful heartbreaking um this was with i went out with wild horse welfare in 2017 because that uh, this is an issue they've been campaigning on for all their 90 odd years of existence and one thing that really struck me was how much things now are better than they were largely thanks to the campaigning of wild horse welfare so you know back in years ago they were all packed in with no partitions and they would trample each other and and come off with broken legs and and just absolutely horrific but yeah to see these horses some of them had obviously been farmed for meat and had probably never been outside and and then you know we know how tiring traveling can be even for a fit competition horse and they're on there for you know hours and hours and hours from poland to southern italy and um yeah it was a a real eye-opener 
Thank you, Eleanor. It's interesting to hear that sort of really sad first-hand experience that, that you went through with World Horse Welfare three or four years ago. Finally today, I want to talk to you, Lucy, about coronavirus. We never have a podcast without talking about coronavirus. Um, <laughs> Today, we're particularly focused on rules being broken in racing because there have been some breaches of COVID protocols in Ireland, firstly, haven't there? There have. And this is one of the big ones we've heard about recently. I mean, we hear about other other breaches and sort of minor breaches and things coming through. But this one was particularly interesting because it involved Irish champion trainer Willie Mullins to two people that were working for him. And there were very, very serious fines and, and bans that they all received, actually. So it centred on his groom, Katie Murphy, and stable representative, Stephen Jones, who broke racing restriction rules by travelling to Punchestown races. This was back in 14th of November, and they'd been at Aintree the previous week. And it also centred on the fact that those two people, Katie Murphy and Steve Jones, falsified health screening questionnaires. So they not only were somewhere they shouldn't have been, but they also part of the protocols and having COVID safety protocols at race courses is this this health questionnaire and they they didn't quite answer that answer that truthfully. So they received um a two hundred euro fine and a four hundred euro fine respectively and a three month ban and Mr Mullins was also hit with a two and a half thousand euro fine and a two week ban. So they they all apologized and but it it really kind of brings home just how seriously uh, rightly so that sport is taking these COVID COVID restrictions and to keep to keep people safe and the consequences of, of breaking them. Mm. And there's been a high profile case in Britain recently as well, hasn't there, which is quite different to those Irish cases. This British case involved someone going through a wrong door. Can you explain that one to me? Yeah, this one was quite heartbreaking, actually, because as we said, there's, um, it's been quite interesting sort of writing about it and looking at sort of cases this week. It's quite a difference, really, between, in my opinion, between, you know, knowing what you're doing is wrong and answering things falsely. And to this case, which is Alex Thorne, who and he recently he lost his appeal against. He received a 21 day suspension after he failed to weigh in following his winning ride at Taunton on the 12th of November. Now, Taunton's race course, as, as many of the race courses have, their layout has changed and he went after after his race he had a chat with uh, he had an interview and then he went straight back into the changing room instead of going to weigh in first and now normally you wouldn't be able to to do that you basically walk over just about walk over the scales um, on your way back to the changing room but as soon as he'd gone in that door then you know that was that was it that's the rules that's game over but I think everyone really felt for him on that and the professional jockeys association did ask for race courses to you know add add some more clear signing as well to, to stop this from happening again I understand it's possibly not the first time this has happened we certainly hear of other mistakes stake breaches as well where people have you know got confused got into the wrong area for whatever reason and um and some of the fines that come with that anyway going back to this case so it, he did appeal the, he appealed his suspension and while the the British Horse Racing Authority disciplinary panel did dismiss that appeal they did return his deposit because I think you know it was certainly it doesn't seem to be an intentional thing to do and I think everyone everyone realized that but it is quite interesting that again how seriously racecourses are taking the rules over here and and this isn't the first case we've seen of of people falling foul of the rules for you know misunderstanding or getting in the wrong place at the wrong time but it is interesting that it was that it was up, upheld and it wasn't it wasn't dismissed by the panel mm. 
Thank you, Lucy. Really interesting to hear about that case, which sounds 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 like a sad case of someone who'd won a race and then uh, did the wrong thing, but totally unintentionally. And also to hear about the quite different case in Ireland as well. Really interesting. And thank you to Eleanor and Becky for joining us today too. So now it's over to Vet Ricky Farr from Far and Percy Equine. I'm going to stick my head above the parapet on this one. Um, probably a few people will probably disagree with me. However, I think the evidence is pointing more and more in uh, in my favour. We're basically talking about weight maintenance and why we should let horses lose weight over the winter. And I think this all boils down to um, obesity. In people, the prevalence of obesity is on the increase. Um they're expected to be around about 11 million more obese adults in the UK by 2030. Uh, that's about a 30% increase, which is quite scary. There was a very interesting study done in Germany in 2015 looking at um, the correlations between children being overweight and parenting styles. Uh, I think we're all guilty of it. Um, I have two young daughters myself. Uh, the temptation just to give them a pack of crisps to keep them quiet for five minutes because life is busy is is overwhelming. However, there was a direct correlation there between uh, slightly overweight children and the parenting stars. But also there was the interesting um, adage that actually looking at pets. So we know that there is a direct correlation as well with styles of management and obesity in pets. The sad fact is that almost our horses have become pets. And I think we are treating them like that. My partner has a horse. Um, She fully admits that she takes great pleasure in giving her horse a carrot or an apple. A single carrot or a single apple, okay, that's fine if it's almost like a treat. But it's when you go up with that great big bag of carrots that you've pulled up from the supermarket and they devour the entire lot. I think the fact that we are treating our horses as pets rather than horses or working animals is actually contributing to their obesity. So should we be letting horses lose weight and gain weight naturally through the year well okay if you look at the normal average wild horse depends what kind of studies you read but horses can be walking from anywhere between 20 to 40 miles a day i posed this question to a a couple of friends last night saying how much exercise do you think is normal for a horse and i I got varying responses normally between 45 minutes to an hour of schooling or a hack a day well if you compare that 45 minutes to walking the equivalent of probably two marathons a day the the energy expenditure to to walk two marathons a day is a lot higher than doing 45 minutes of a gentle hack or just around the school so i think it's we need to look at the weight management of our individuals and our individual horses to make sure that we can lose the weight over the winter period we don't mind them putting on small amounts during the summer that's a natural cycle but the natural cycle is to lose it over the winter period and i think that's where domestication and us having them as pets has come on to a bit of a downfall so by over rugging increasing their feeding bringing them into a stable environment in the winter is not allowing them to shed the normal pounds and calories that they would do naturally in the wild so Equine obesity, I mean, it has a whole plethora of, of 
of consequences. I, I've just got a little list here that, that managed to pull from a, a couple of papers. So uh, increased risk of laminitis, poorer prognosis or recovery from laminitis, um, an increase of what we call hyperlipidemia. So in other words, increased amounts of fat that actually run around the system. Uh, impairment of the normal thermoregulation, so them controlling their own body temperature, altered estrous cycles and decreased fertilities. Um, an increased amount of what we call pro-inflammatory cytokine release, which can also end up with sort of kind of like um, an aging effect on your cells. Greater in risk of osteochondrosis desiccans in foals that are born to obese mares. Undesirable behavioral traits, increase in blood pressure, uh, increased risk of orthopedic disease. Um, the classical one that we kind of get where you go out and you say, oh, horse has got a pretty swollen sheath. Yes, there are various reasons for a swollen sheath, but also even obesity can cause things like swollen sheaths. Um, increased risk of small intestinal lesions or what we call pedunculated lipoma, so causing colics that actually can end up um, increasing their risk or their need for surgery. So the list just goes on and on and on. But I think domestication has been the biggest downfall of them i'd like people to go back and actually consider what they actually do there was a lovely study done by the royal veterinary college that in a 50 mile radius of the royal veterinary college they found that up to 72 percent of the equine population were classed as obese which i think is an absolute scary number and i can imagine that is pretty similar up and down the up and down the country um we all know it we all probably carry a few extra pounds we know it's down to diet and exercise why should we think that that's different with our horses so yeah um i probably ruffle a few feathers by by saying to owners your horse is obese but we genuinely are killing a lot of our horses with kindness because we're treating them like pets they're designed to be walking miles and miles a day and that's so bear it in mind keep the feed down don't over rug them and that, making sure that you're monitoring weights effectively. Thank you, Ricky. Next week, Ricky will be back to talk about the importance of worming, and we'll also have an interview with show producer Katie Marriott Payne, who'll be chatting about her memories of Olympia. I think we'll all be missing the London show this Christmas. Finally, now that we've revealed the winners of the Horse and Hound Awards in partnership with NAF, I wanted to remind you all that Lucinda Green, who scooped the Lifetime Achievement Award, was our very first podcast guest back in June, so you can hear from her in our back catalogue. We also have an interview coming up with Nick Skelton, winner of the Horse Rail Moment of the Year, in our 31st of December episode of the podcast, so don't miss that one. And of course, you can catch all our awards coverage online and in this week's magazine. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode and see you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.